0: Anyway, it is chapter 17, unsustainable, part two of that chapter. And in this chapter, what we've been learning about is the ambiguity, almost the studied ambiguity, of the word sustainable. And David has previously mentioned in this chapter how sustain can mean something along the lines of provide you with what you need, but also sustain can mean keep things the same way, to sustain a particular way of life, way of doing things. And with human beings, with people, these two senses of the word sustain can be at utter odds with one another because we need change. We need progress. In order for us to provide ourselves with what we need, we're going to have to have new resources come into being, create new knowledge, enable us to weather the problems that the cosmos throws against us. So we are only sustained by constant and rapid progress, constant and rapid problem-solving. So without further ado for this episode, let's get straight into the reading. And David writes, The Easter Islanders' culture sustained them in both senses. This is the hallmark of a functioning static society. It provided them with a way of life, but it also inhibited change. It sustained their determination to enact and reenact the same behaviours for generations. It sustained the values that placed forests literally beneath statues. And it sustained the shapes of those statues and the pointless project of building ever more of them. Moreover, the portion of the culture that sustained them in the sense of providing for their needs was not especially impressive. Other Stone Age societies have managed to take fish from the sea and sow crops without wasting their efforts in endless monument building. And if the prevailing theory is true, the Easter Islanders started to starve before the fall of their civilization. In other words, even after it had stopped providing for them, it retained its fatal proficiency at sustaining a fixed pattern of behavior. And so it remained effective at preventing them from addressing the problem by the only means that could possibly have been effective creative thought and innovation. Attenborough regards the culture as having been very valuable and its fall as a tragedy. Bronowski's view was closer to mine, which is that since the culture never improved, its survival for many centuries was a tragedy, like that of all static societies. Just pausing there, um, this is reminiscent of... Some other things that David has said over the years that I've heard. It it, it conjures in the mind um, what David says about how species don't care that they're going extinct. There's nothing about the species of panda bears that causes the species to be worried about its own extinction. There's nothing in the genes that causes worry in the pandas the pandas don't know they're going extinct okay pandas may suffer they may experience pain who do who knows i don't have a, um, a, a particularly strong view on that i happen to think that it's pr- possibly the case that animals because of the different kind of software running on their brains they aren't capable of certain kinds of qualia all that aside a species as it gradually goes extinct doesn't have a Way in which the, spe- the species isn't intelligent. The species itself isn't intelligent. Now, this is similar to this idea here about how some people misdirect their concern about the fall of a civilization because I think that psychologically they're worried about the individual people. And certainly we should worry about individual people, but not cultures. Cultures don't care. Cultures don't have minds. Cultures simply are a certain group of memes, a memeplex that is going on. And sometimes those cultures are terribly damaging. It's much like languages. People who are interested in linguistics, you often hear that they bemoan and regret the fact that certain languages are going extinct. Now, aside from it being of academic interest, there's no need to worry about a language going extinct. It's not causing particular suffering for those people who once spoke that language, because they're no longer with us. We should, of course, be primarily concerned about the suffering of other people. But this is very different to being concerned about the suffering of language or the suffering of a culture. Cultures don't suffer, languages don't suffer in the same way that species don't suffer. So if you misdirect your focus of concern, then what you're apt to do is to be worried less about individual people and their suffering and more worried about the abstract of something like a civilization that is actually the cause of the suffering of individual people. And by the way, it seems to be the case if you look into certain languages, certain dead languages or certain languages that that aren't very popular anymore or that are going extinct. Some of these languages seem incapable of being able to represent things like complex numbers. They have more difficulty with abstract concepts than certain other modern languages like English or like French or like Cantonese and so on and so forth. That if you have an ancient type language that has somehow remained extant in an Amazon rainforest or a some other South American place, and people still speak these languages, they're incapable, uh, not because their minds are incapable, but they're incapable at times of being able to represent number in that language. So I've read, I could be wrong about this, but this is what I've read, that in certain languages, for example, you can't count beyond a certain highest number, because what happens then is that you just say, and more, and more, rather than having specific words for certain numbers. And for similar reasons, there's difficulty with logic in other languages as well. And that might be a reason why certain cultures don't make the advances that have been made in certain other cultures, because their language is less able to adapt itself in order to conjure good explanations. That could be the case. That's just a conjecture. I could be wrong about that. But for here, as David says there, we should not be concerned about certain cultures, certain societies, which actually actively cause not only the society to become static, but like all static societies, exacerbate the suffering that's going on with individuals in those societies because the individuals are capable of suffering and if they weren't in that static society which is putting ever more effort into building ridiculous monuments then they might be able to make progress an endless stream of knowledge creation in order to lift themselves out of the terrible dire straits in which they find themselves on some hapless island losing its finite resources because they do not have the capacity, the time, energy, and effort required in order to create more knowledge which allows them to find new resources. Let's continue. David writes, Attenborough is not alone in drawing frightening lessons from the history of Easter Island. It has become a widely adduced version of the spaceship Earth metaphor. But what exactly is the analogy behind the lesson? The idea that civilization depends on good forest management has little reach. But the broader interpretation that survival depends on good resource management has almost no content. Any physical object can be deemed a resource and, since problems are soluble, all disasters are caused by poor resource management. The ancient Roman ruler Julius Caesar was stabbed to death. So one could summarise his mistake as imprudent iron management resulting in an excessive build-up of iron in his body. It is true that if he had succeeded in keeping iron away from his body, he would not have died in the exact way he did. Yet as an explanation of how and why he died, that ludicrously misses the point. The interesting question is not what he was stabbed with, but how it came about that other politicians plotted to remove him violently from office, and they succeeded. A Popperian analysis would focus on the fact that Caesar had taken vigorous steps to ensure that he could not be removed without violence. And then on the fact that his removal did not rectify but actually entrenched this progress-suppressing innovation. To understand such events and their wider significance, one has to understand the politics of the situation, the psychology, the philosophy, sometimes the theology, not the cutlery. The Easter Islanders may or may not have suffered a forest management fiasco. But if they did, the explanation would not be about why they made mistakes problems are inevitable, but why they failed to correct them. Pausing there, just my reflection on that. Summary, I suppose, summary. So any particular problem does not necessarily have to be the end of society because, as we hear throughout the book, problems are inevitable. What the real problem is, is the persistent failure to even attempt to correct certain problems. So in the case of tyrannical regimes if people are getting removed violently, one emperor after another, the problem there is the inability to find a mechanism, which we call democracy in the Popperian sense, of removing rulers without violence. And if you're a ruler and the previous ten rulers have all been stabbed to death or otherwise removed via a mob of some sort, then you better be thinking to yourself that there's something wrong with this system and you need to correct this system in some way and so too with so-called resource management. Any prior civilization, ancient civilization that has gone extinct due to a problem of resource management, it isn't because they ran out of wood. It's because that as they ran out of wood, they couldn't conjure an idea about how to stop depleting the wood, let's say, or doing what they were doing Rather than trying to figure out solutions, trying to create new knowledge, trying to make progress. And of course, we can judge these ancient civilizations, these civilizations that have gone extinct, because we are in the lofty position of being the sole remaining civilization that is dynamic. If there have been dynamic societies before, they've gone extinct. Things have gone wrong. Probably they've turned to stasis, or static societies around them have attacked them. And so this is why we, if we want to survive, if we want to be the sole exception to the rule that every single society that has ever existed has gone extinct, if we want to be the exception to that and not ever go extinct. We have to use this creative capacity to continue to solve problems and when we encounter them, to really turn our critical faculties towards solving that problem, including criticising the society itself. That's very important. Being able to criticise mechanisms within society, processes in society, not in a thoughtless manner, not criticism just for the sake of criticism, targeted criticism when there's a problem. People today, of course, politically, and this has always been the case, can become critical of the Western tradition and the Enlightenment traditions without first understanding what it's all about. In other words, they criticise criticism itself. They criticise, let's say, democracy, or they criticise, let's say, capitalism. These are means of correcting errors in rulers and policies and the market, respectively. And if you have a misunderstanding of what these systems are, if you think that capitalism, which is actually freedom, is oppressive, and if you think that democracy, which is actually a way of changing rulers without violence, is in fact a form of tyranny, keeping down the small person or something like that, then what you're apt to do is to focus your criticism in the wrong place, namely against means of correcting errors. And if there's one thing, as the beginning of affinity says, and if there's one moral maxim that David in some moods says that he should regard as the solid foundation, if you like, of course he wouldn't like that, word, Uh, as being a starting point for all uh, morality, or at least of being a, a moral maxim that we shouldn't be able to correct, change, alter, that one being, do not destroy the means of error correction, that being the one moral maxim that we have to protect at all costs, if you are the kind of person that thinks that democracy has to be cast aside because it's not working for certain people, or that capitalism needs to be cast aside because it's not working for people, what you're doing is misunderstanding what those systems are about. Those systems are about correcting errors. And if you were to destroy those systems, you're destroying means of correcting errors. It's the same reason, by the way, that the death penalty is is morally abhorrent to many of us. Because a person, no matter how evil they are, can, in theory, in principle, correct their errors. And so even the worst, most awful person because a person is really a software program, they're a mind, a mind can be changed. And if their mind is changed, of course, they might end up feeling guilty about all the terrible things they've done. But if you kill them, there's no means of correcting that error. So you've destroyed a means of correcting their error. In other words, their very poor mental state, their very poor ideas. So (laughs) that that is way off topic here. Let's go back to the book. And David says, quote, I have argued that the laws of nature cannot possibly impose any bound on progress by the arguments of chapter 1 and 3. Denying this is tantamount to invoking the supernatural. In other words, progress is sustainable indefinitely, but only by people who engage in a particular kind of thinking and behavior, the problem-solving and the problem-creating kind characteristic of the Enlightenment. And that requires the optimism of a dynamic society. One of the consequences of optimism is that one expects to learn from failure, one's own and others. But the idea that our civilization has something to learn from the Easter Islanders, alleged forestry failure is not derived from any structural resemblance between our situation and theirs because they failed to make progress in practically every area. No one expects the Easter Islanders' failures in, say, medicine to explain our difficulties in curing cancer or their failure to understand the night sky to explain why our quantum theory of gravity is elusive to us. The Easter Islanders' errors, both methodological and substantive, were simply too elementary to be relevant to us and their imprudent forestry, if that really is what destroyed their civilization, would be typical of their lack of problem-solving across the board. We should do much better to study their many small successes than their entirely commonplace failures. If we could discover their rules of thumb, such as stone mulching, to help grow crops on poor soil, we might find valuable fragments of historical and ethnological knowledge, or perhaps even something of practical use. But one cannot draw general conclusions from rules of thumb. It would be astonishing if the details of a primitive static society's collapse had any relevance to hidden dangers that may be facing our open, dynamic, and scientific society, let alone what we should do about them. Pause there, just my reflection on this. Uh, One of the more powerful points that Sam Harris, uh, the podcaster and author, has made, neuroscientist, has made over the years with respect to morality is in his strident and quite accurate arguments against moral relativism and this is the idea that for example the fundamentalist Islamic cult the Taliban should be respected in moral terms that if they have certain abhorrent moral practices we in the West shouldn't judge them nor anyone else for that matter so the Taliban might be an extreme example of, as Sam would say, using the example, the the, the terrible example of the honour killing, let's say, or throwing acid in the face of young girls for the crime of being seen with a man outside of the house, so on and so forth. As Sam says, being a moral relativist on this point, thinking that the Taliban has some reasonable stance, something to teach us about morality, is rather like saying, well, Maybe they have something to teach us about chemistry or physics. Of course they don't. That would be ridiculous. There's nothing in their holy books that can inform us about the standard model. It's laughable to think that anything scientific could be learned by an ancient culture that actively seeks not knowledge, but stasis. And so too in morality, and very much echoes the point here. We should pity people that today still live in cultures like that, but because of cultural relativism, very much because of cultural relativism, there is a lack of will of trying to save people from these terrible cultures. Now, it's not the case that we should go in there, into these cultures necessarily, and use violence or use force, unless people want us to. Unless there are people within that culture who are crying out for help, and there possibly are. I don't know enough about geopolitics in order to comment upon this uh, with any reasonable accuracy. But what I would say is that anyone who wants to escape that kind of culture should be welcomed with open arms. Just as recently, both the United Kingdom and Australia have said that anyone from Hong Kong who wants to come to our countries is very welcome because the tyrannical, backward political ideology that drives communist China is causing great suffering. And we can see that and it is morally right for us to allow anyone from those countries who wants to come here with enlightenment values, with the ideas of democracy, freedom, capitalism, and so on, should be allowed to. In fact, not to allow that is morally reprehensible. We should be standing up for those values, which means we need to spread those values far and wide. Okay, back to the book and David writes. The knowledge that would have saved the Easter Islanders' civilization has already been in our possession for centuries A sextant would have allowed them to explore their ocean and bring back the seeds of new forests and of new ideas. Greater wealth and a written culture would have enabled them to recover after a devastating plague. But most of all, they would have been better at solving problems of all kinds if they had known some of our ideas about how to do that, such as the rudiments of a scientific outlook. Such knowledge would not have guaranteed their welfare any more than it guarantees ours. Nevertheless, the fact that their civilization failed for lack of what ours discovered long ago cannot be an ominous warning of what the future could hold for us. Pause there, just reflecting on that. So Attenborough's mistake, and the mistake of a certain kind of environmentalist thinker when looking at failed civilizations like this, is to misunderstand the qualitative difference between that kind of civilization and ours, that kind of civilization is not attempting to make progress. They're trying to maintain, sustain, a particular way of life which is not making progress, which is probably enacting certain religious rituals. And for that reason, is going to devote ever more resources to doing the thing which is causing extinction of their culture and of their society. Ours is different. Ours is trying to exploit everything we can in the physical environment, using our creative knowledge in order to sustain us, to sustain our continually rapid progress and change. So the sustain there is similar in the first sense, namely we both want to sustain our societies, we both want to sustain things as they are. But for the Easter Islanders, things as they are are the same from day to day to year to year. But for us, Things are different from day to day and from year to year. We are deliberately trying to change things, namely in the direction of improvement, of progress, of the objective better. And so our computers get faster, our cars become more efficient, our power generation is better, and so on and so forth. Things get better, our medicine gets better, our science gets better, we learn more. That's what we want to sustain. We want to continue to do that. And the only way for us to continue to sustain rapid progress and rapid change is by continually creating more knowledge about how to exploit the things around us. Maybe people don't like to hear the word exploit, it sounds pejorative, but to me, this is really what we want to do because we want to take the raw materials that are around us, this boring uh, matter that most of the universe consists of just otherwise useless hydrogen and helium gas and rocks and dust and the stuff that is out there in the cosmos. We want to exploit that. We want to take that and transform it into something truly astonishing, a civilization, an open-ended stream of knowledge creation. That's what we want to do. We want to create a new spaceship universe where it's the universe that is really sustaining us. Not because the universe is... Some godlike figure that's going to look after us, but rather that the universe will be under our control, under our control, just like my house is under my control to some extent. That I've got um, air conditioning and flowing water and electricity and so on and so forth. Eventually, In the distant future, uh, larger regions of space will be able to sustain sustain us in the same way that people's homes sustain them now because the people are able to control the material out of which their home is made and so too we'll be able to do that with ever larger regions of space and ever greater quantities of matter and raw materials. Back to the book. David says... This knowledge based approach to explaining human events follows from the general arguments of this book. We know that by achieving arbitrary physical transformations that are not forbidden by the laws of physics, such as replanting a forest, can only be a matter of knowing how. We know that finding out how is a matter of seeking good explanations. We also know that whether a particular attempt to make progress will succeed or not is profoundly unpredictable. It can be understood in retrospect but not in terms of factors that could have been known in advance. Thus we now understand why alchemists never succeeded at transmutation. Because they would have had to have understood some nuclear physics first. But this could not have been known at the time. And the progress that they did make, which led to the science of chemistry, depended strongly on how individual alchemists thought, and only peripherally on factors like which chemicals could be found nearby. The conditions for a beginning of infinity exist in almost every human habitation on Earth. In his book, Guns, Germs and Steel, the biogeographer Jared Diamond takes the opposite view. He proposes what he calls an ultimate explanation of why human history was so different on different continents. In particular, he seeks to explain why it was Europeans who sailed out to conquer the Americas, Australasia and Africa, and not vice versa. In Diamond's view, the psychology and philosophy and politics of historical events are no more than ephemeral ripples on the great river of history. Its course is set by factors independent of human ideas and decisions. Specifically, he says, the continents on our planet had different natural resources, different geographies, plants, animals, and microorganisms. And details aside, that is what explains the broad sweep of history, including which human ideas were created and what decisions were made, politics philosophy, cutlery, and all. Pause there, just my reflection. I think in the future, (laughs) there can be no greater compliment for an author than to have been criticised by David Deutsch, especially in The Beginning of Infinity. And so David is about to do a withering critique of Jared Diamond's, not only his book, but his entire worldview, comparing him to Engels and Marx, being on that Continuum, And quite rightly too. Now you can look up Jared Diamond. He's been interviewed by many people, um, including Sam Harris on the Making Sense podcast. And indeed, he is a great pessimist and ignores, or perhaps just, uh, well, doesn't have the thought that there is a reality to abstractions. Uh, I guess this is one of the more fundamental differences between a thinker like David Deutsch and the David Deutsch worldview and the typical academic intellectual and scientist who thinks that all call, all events have to be explained in terms of physical causes. That the only way in which we can try and understand physical reality is by recourse to Events in physical reality. And that seems to make perfectly logical sense. After all, what else could it be? Supernatural? No, no. There can be. Causal things that go on, events that go on in abstract reality that cause changes in physical reality. This is not supernatural. This is not magic. This is mundane. This, now, the reality of abstractions is all the way back there in chapter five, and you can read about it there. But suffice it to say, for now, as we've come to learn, what people, what knowledge people create, has a real impact on what happens day to day what happens to a civilization? What happens to a person? David Deutsch could have chosen to study physics or not. Having chosen to study physics, he could have chosen various different avenues within the entire discipline of physics. He chose the deepest and most fundamental areas of physics and then chose to explore quantum computation or the, the interface between computation and the quantum theory. Inventing field of quantum computation and it's that that abstract thought that he had whenever he wrote it wherever he wrote it so he 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 had the thought what is a thought he had the idea what's an idea an idea and a thought they're abstract things but they're really real i mean they exist inside your mind but they're instantiated there as as Dave, in david's terminology crackles of electricity between neurons a certain pattern of electrical firing But it's not identical to that pattern of electrical firing. After all, we can take that thought, or that idea, in the case of quantum computation, and write it down on a piece of paper, or on a chalkboard. Or he could explain it in a lecture, as he's done in various places. These different forms, explaining it, that's sound waves, writing it down, that's ink on paper, having the thought, that is, of course, electrical crackles. All these different instantiations, as we call them, are ways of representing the idea. But the idea itself, the idea itself is an abstraction. And that abstract idea actually has physical effects in the real real world, the physical world. The real world consists of these abstract things as well as these physical things. And the abstract things have real effects on the physical things. There are now institutes and research bodies around the world racing to produce quantum computers. And so that's the effect of David Deutsch's ideas of, of, of generating this industry, this multi-billion dollar industry now. He's one of the most key people uh, in this entire race towards quantum computation. Without David Deutsch, who knows when quantum computers would have been thought of or really refined to the point where they are now. We might be waiting another 50 years for a David Deutsch to come along, if David Deutsch had never existed, uh, for us to be at the point where we are now with quantum computers. And eventually there will be an industry of quantum computers where we have desktop quantum computers. And that will all be due to ideas that had their genesis at some point in uh, David Deutsch's mind, and before that to the pioneers of quantum theory, and so on and so forth. So these abstract ideas have real-world consequences. That's common sense, isn't it? Well, it seems common sense only in light of hearing that idea. <laughs> so now that uh, I've explained it, David's explained it, now now it seems, you know, how could it have been otherwise? But if you've never heard that before, then you're liable to think that the only way in which you can explain events that have happened in physical reality, including throughout human history, is by recourse to physical stuff is by looking at the resources, for example, and that's what Jared Diamond has done. And again, Jared Diamond and and other authors that are mentioned and critiqued throughout this book uh, should take it as a great compliment, because there are many people who have these sort of pessimistic ideas, but Jared Diamond no doubt has expressed these pessimistic ideas in a very clear and forceful way, and so David could have picked any number of people who have similar ideas to this, but he's picked Jared Diamond. And so let's go back to the critique. And David writes, for example, part of his explanation, Jared Diamond's explanation, of why the Americas never developed a technological civilization before the advent of Europeans is that there were no animals there suitable for domestication as beasts of burden. Llamas are native to South America and have been used as beasts of burden since prehistoric times. So Diamond points out that they are not native to the continent as a whole, but only to the Andes Mountains. Why did no technological civilization arise in the Andes Mountains? Why did the Incan Empire not have an enlightenment? Diamond's position is that other biogeographical factors were unfavourable. The communist thinker Friedrich Engels proposed the same ultimate explanation of history and made the same proviso about llamas in 1884. And Engels wrote, The eastern hemisphere possessed nearly all the animals adaptable to domestication. The western hemisphere, America, had no mammals that could be domesticated except the llama, which, moreover, was only found in one part of South America, owing to these differences in natural conditions. The population of each hemisphere now goes on its own way. And that's from The Origin of the Family, Private Property and State, Friedrich Engels, based on notes by Karl Marx. I'll just pause there. I've spent some time in South America. I love it there. It's a wonderful place. It's picturesque. I particularly like Bolivia. And the place is full of llamas and alpacas. And Varuncas, I think, is the other one. Anyway, there's three creatures that all look similar. <laughs> look a little bit ridiculous, to be honest. They can all be domesticated. In fact, they're domesticated here in Australia, which is completely unlike, for the most part, um, in South America. And yet, people love their wool. Uh, you know, the, you get very high-quality fleece off these creatures. So it's simply false. It's simply false to say they couldn't be domesticated. I mean, this is a strange, ad hoc attempt to shoehorn in an explanation that really doesn't fit. Anyway, let's keep going. And David writes, but why did llamas continue to be only found in one part of South America if they could have been useful elsewhere? Engels did not address that issue. But Diamond realized that it cries out for explanation because unless the reason that llamas were not exported was itself biogeographical, Diamond's ultimate explanation is false. So he proposed a biogeographical reason. He pointed out that a hot lowland region Unsuitable for llamas, separates the Andes from the highlands of Central America, where llamas would have been useful in agriculture. Pause there, my reflection. Again, again, I, I, I defy <laughs> any other continent to put up their hand to say they are hotter consistently than Australia. Okay, sometimes there are some places, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, certain places in, in, in Central America might fit that bill, but barely, barely. I mean, it is very hot and dry here in Australia, and yet we farm llamas. I'll put some um, photos up. Uh, they are, they're, they're a common sight in some places uh, here in New South Wales, in my own state where I am. So this is simply, again, false. It's a shoehorning in. It's, 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 a, it's an attempt without... Uh, it's, it's, it's a pure guess. It's a pure guess. There, there is absolutely no reason why human beings cannot take something like the llama from one place to another, even an ancient culture. They can carry the water with them. They can carry the food with them. Um, Animals are very robust. Um, Kangaroos will survive in hot and cold climates. Llamas will survive in hot and cold climates. I mean, the, 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 the horse uh famously you know sort of began in arabia somewhere or other and now it exists everywhere around the world cows are a similar sort of a thing animals uh you know they can tolerate quite a wide range of temperatures so this is simply you know to a person who i guess is interested in agriculture would seem ridiculous i think anyway let's persevere (laughs) david writes but again why Must such a region have been a barrier to the spread of domesticated llamas? Traders traveled between South and Central America for centuries, perhaps overland and certainly by sea. Where there are long-range traders, it is not necessary for an idea to be useful in an unbroken line of places for it to be able to be spread. As I remarked in chapter 11, knowledge has the unique ability to take aim at a distant target and utterly transform it while having scarcely any effect on the space between. just pausing there, it is my reflection. Uh, uh, Apologies if this becomes irritating. That's just one of those sentences that if you're dipping into this podcast now and you haven't listened to all 50-something episodes as of uh, today, um, uh, could easily blow by you. That's such an important point about David's conception of knowledge that is unique to David Deutsch. It's very much a quotable piece of David Deutsch. Again, um, let me just repeat, he writes there, Knowledge has the unique ability to take aim at a distant target and utterly transform it without having any effect on things in between. So we are beginning the process of transforming Mars. It is very, very early on, but the number of probes up there now studying that particular place, the that, 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 that distant, far-off, uh, inert rock, uh, one day in the distant future... We will have something approaching a civilization there. We will have buildings there. And that is not because a force of nature, like gravity or the electromagnetic force or some nuclear force, whatever, uh, has aimed itself there. It's because we, people, our knowledge has been aimed to that place and then transformed it. Much like the way in which Europeans aimed their knowledge in the form of people And boats traveling to the Americas and to Australasia and various other places, and then transformed those places. Sydney only exists because knowledge from um, England was aimed from England via boats, uh, centuries old boats now, coming to Australia and then radically transforming the civilizations that were here, the continent that was here, into a beautiful, thriving metropolis and civilization where people are now creating an open-ended stream of knowledge creation. Okay, so let me just um, read a little bit more and we'll end it here for today. And David writes, after talking about how knowledge can transform a place um, once it's been aimed there, he writes, So what would it have taken for some of those traders to take some llamas north for sale? Only the idea, the leap of imagination, to guess that if something is useful here, it might be useful there too, and the boldness to take the speculative and physical risk. Polynesian traders did exactly that. They ranged further across a more formidable natural barrier, carrying goods, including livestock. Why did none of the South American traders ever think of selling llamas to the Central Americans? We may never know, but why should it have had anything to do with geography? They may simply have been too set in their ways. Perhaps innovative uses for animals were taboo. Perhaps such a trade was attempted, but failed every time because of sheer bad luck. But, whatever the reason was, it cannot have been that the hot region constituted a physical barrier, because it did not. Okay. Ending the reading there for today. And yes, I uh, went to Machu Picchu in um, Peru, uh, where the so-called lost city of the Incas, uh, still stands. And uh, much is made about uh, what happened to the Incas. Oh, I think the Incas are still there. I don't think the Incas were wiped out. The Incas are the Quechuan people that still exist, still live, and still th- and now thrive throughout Bolivia and Peru and parts of Argentina as well. Uh, wonderful communities of, of, of people there. People that met... The Spanish conquistadors, and yes, it was a violent meeting, and yes, uh, terrible atrocities were committed on all sides. The Incans themselves were a terribly violent people, uh, you know, uh, having the belief that you needed to uh, sacrifice young children regularly, and in fact, put young children at the base of um, the buildings. I think in centuries gone by, and that has gradually morphed into uh, llama fetuses now being put in the base of newly built buildings. These ancient Incans were clearly part of a static society. They had built uh, great buildings and monuments in rather inaccessible places. And so certainly the engineering feats there were uh, quite impressive for the time, but not as impressive as, for example, the Spanish who conquered them. Uh, And who not merely conquered them, but really, I think taught them uh, how to succeed and thrive and survive, and probably, rather than wiping them out through disease, which is often the way in which it's, it's, it's suggested that that encounter went, that the Spanish merely massacred or caused the death by disease of so many Incans. That may have happened as well. But largely, the Incans survived. The native people there survived and now thrive. And certainly in a place like Bolivia, Bolivia is very much a Native American nation, uh, and the 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 Spaniards form a minority, unlike in let's say for the South in Argentina, where they form a majority. <laughs> and so, South America is just an absolutely fascinating place, a beautiful place um, to visit. Uh, And and, uh, an interesting study in how static societies can become dynamic societies, the static society left behind, but clearly that ethnic group of people continue through to today, but they're no longer a static society, nothing like what they used to be. So sure, there are aspects of the culture that have been preserved over time, but the important aspects of the culture that was the Incan, the ancient Incan culture that kept them from making rapid progress has largely been destroyed and isn't that good. The people themselves have survived, uh, but the culture, large parts of the culture, have been done away with, replaced by better Enlightenment values. And so although Bolivia is one of these places where I've talked before on the podcast about how if only they had better governments, they'd be far more wealthy... Nevertheless, they are still a more or less modern society, certainly in comparison to the static society of the Incans. Okay, so that's it for today. We're going to have a part three. Maybe there'll be a part four, I'm not sure, because this is such such an important chapter that really, as I said in the previous episode, I think, brings together so much of earlier chapters in The Beginning of Infinity. Uh, that we really need to spend time unpacking what is said here. Until next time, bye bye. For those who've uh, stuck around, this is uh, an epilogue, or what we might call an Easter egg for the true diehard fans. Um, 2020 was a difficult time for many people. And like many people, uh, I wasn't working in the same way that I was working previously. Uh, Many people were furloughed. I wasn't exactly furloughed, but I wasn't doing the same job that I'd been doing for the last sort of 20 years. And so, I had twenty twenty, large part of twenty twenty, devoted to spending time on a close and focused study of the beginning of infinity and associated material, and making more of these these podcasts. And so, the rate of podcast making uh, increased. But as many may have noticed, this year in twenty twenty one, the rate of podcast making has somewhat declined, and that's because I've taken on a new job, and that's been unfortunate. But happily, I won't be doing that job for much longer. I'll be able to devote far more time to the beginning of infinity and to associated work and to promoting these ideas. And in fact, it looks like that this will become my uh, real focus because Naval Ravikant, who has been a great supporter of TopCast over the last few months, and I've been really buoyed by the fact that he's sent me some nice comments about the podcast that I've been doing. And I won't be saying much right now, but suffice it to say for the moment that we're going to work on some common projects together. We've already done some, and anyone who's following TopCast may be aware that I've had some conversations with Naval uh, over there on Clubhouse. And the very first of the podcasts that I've been doing with Naval will be coming out soon. And this episode is the first one where really it is a joint venture between Naval and I. Naval is not here physically, but he's certainly here in spirit. He's such a great supporter of the podcast that the podcast will be leveling up, I hope, to some extent over the coming months. So as we're coming to the end of the Topcast Beginning of Infinity series, I regard this as really just the beginning of the beginning of infinity, that we will be able to promote these ideas in concert with Naval and be able to really begin spreading the message. Well, of course, the message has already begun to be spread by David Deutsch himself, but we're always at the beginning of the beginning of infinity. (laughs) And so it's a wonderful time for the community of people who are supporters of the books and supporters of David's ideas and trying to cure the world of what has become a pessimistic culture in the intellectual community, certainly. And so over the coming months, I hope that you see some differences. I hope that you see some more content about the work of David Deutsch promoting these ideas, clarifying some scientific and philosophical understandings that can help us all perhaps benefit And when I say all, I really do mean all. As the subtitle of The Beginning of Infinity says, these are explanations that transform the world. And so we hope we can restart, reinvigorate that transforming of the world through this book, through this brilliant book and these brilliant ideas by this brilliant philosopher and physicist, David Deutsch. And now we have some other people on board, uh, people who are extremely successful in promoting things, in entrepreneurship, and in being able to get a message out there. So look forward to some additional content from myself, from Naval, and from other people associated with trying to promote these ideas, because we really do think it is not just intellectually stimulating to have these conversations. It really can be world-changing, and we do need it. And although the world, we should be optimistic about the way in which the world is, not everyone is, and we can can never do without enough optimism, never do without enough optimism in the Deutschian sense, where we can create knowledge ever faster, solve problems ever faster, and have a lot of fun doing so. So until next time, bye-bye.